0: Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast.
1: Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis. And today I am with my favorite ICU doc. How are you doing, Doc? Good. Happy New Year. Thank
0: you. Happy New Year to you too and everybody listening.
1: So uh, today, I would like to talk about uh, pneumothorax and potentially hemothorax and when exactly do we need to start treating them. Uh, a couple podcasts ago, we talked about tension. Um, and That makes 100% sense. You have uh, pressure in the chest. It's affecting hemodynamics. Now becomes in a medical emergency. You need to treat it now. Um, however, I can see pneumothorax... Potentially becoming an emergency in itself because not because of pressure loss, but because um I'm losing spO2 and I don't necessarily have the ability to just increase the amount of oxygen I'm giving to the patient. Right. So um, maybe if you if you wouldn't mind, can you kind of show me where where exactly is that borderline between tension, pneumothoraces, and a, just a hemothorax?
0: Uh well, the borderline with any tension physiology, whether it is um, due to air uh, outside the, the lung in the pleural space or blood or other fluid um, in the pleural space, is when uh, blood return to the heart is impaired, typically the right ventricle, because the right ventricle is weaker, it's a weaker muscle than the left ventricle, more easily compressed. And so, when your preload drops, um, you go. You can't generate enough cardiac output, um, and your blood pressure drops, and the, you enter what's called um, a, an obstructive shock. Something outside the heart is obstructing its ability, either to circulate blood out. Is in the case of a massive. Um, pulmonary embolism or fill with blood, as in the case of any type of tension physiology around the lung. So that's the borderline. If your blood pressure is stable, your vital signs are otherwise stable, um, and you have air around the lung or blood around the lung, you um, do not have uh, tension physiology.
1: Okay, that sounds perfect. So we're talking about everything short of that Correct. When, I guess, when would a hemothorax actually become dangerous? Because there are people walking around with hemothoraces that are not treated at all.
0: Uh, hemothoraces or pneumothoraces?
1: Or I'm sorry, pneumothoraces. pneumothoraces.
0: Um, we, it. The literature talks about medically managing or observing pneumothoraces that are less than 30% of the area. Of um, one of the thoracic cavities. So the left side with the left upper and lower lobe, and the right side with the right upper, middle, and lower lobe. So 30% or less uh, in a stable patient, in an otherwise stable patient, um, can be observed um, and encouraged encouraged to resolve on its own. Um, The other, you know, one of the things that would be unstable would be obviously oxygenation. Um, somebody with healthy lungs is going to tolerate losing, you know, us, you know, 30%, 15%. So 30% on one side, um, averaged over two is 15% of their lung volume. Somebody with, you know, healthy lungs is going to tolerate losing that lung, that amount of lung volume a, a whole lot easier than somebody with sick lungs, either chronically sick with something like, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or, um, lung cancer or acutely with um, pulmonary edema, pneumonia, uh, ARDS.
1: Okay, that makes sense. So I imagine generally you know, we're talking a lot about trauma, I would imagine. you do. There are spontaneous pneumothoraces that happen on occasion, um, but at least what I imagine, mostly pneumothoraces are caused by trauma. Is that true?
0: Uh, In general, yes, although we saw a ton in COVID, um, especially um, with the first two variants of the disease, the alpha and the delta variant, which had a much higher rate of hospitalization and ICU admissions, um, caused a lot of lung scarring. And um, we call them blebs, basically air pockets in the lungs where the lung tissue is destroyed and just an empty airspace remains. uh, And they would pop and cause um, pneumothoraces and You know, it probably in the patients that we saw in the ECMO unit, it wasn't quite 50%, but it probably wasn't far below it.
1: Okay. Um, Now, is that because, I mean, I imagine also early on we kept, we were very aggressive with vent management and.
0: Yeah, that's, and then so barotrauma from vent management of these patients with. Um, COVID pneumonia, which causes a lot of lung scarring and makes the lungs really, really fragile, uh, is is part of it as well. And, and that was, you know, sure, for sure, part of it in our patients, because most of our patients, pretty much 100% of our patients on ECMA were also ventilated. Okay. And so even that makes with, 100% sense. Yeah, even with really gentle ventilator settings, um, it, it, it could still happen.
1: Okay and i mean kind of i would imagine similar to that would be something like blast lung or something like that and yep in the population i'm thinking of anyway
0: yeah blast lung gunshot wound to the lung um uh, you know uh, blunt force trauma uh from vehicle accidents or falls um and then very rarely you get spontaneous pneumothoraces typically in people with something called marfan syndrome which is very very tall very thin um uh, body habitus, uh, but it, it's a whole syndrome, um, uh, and they they are prone to spontaneous pneumothoraces as well.
1: Okay, so kind of continuing the the kind of trauma at least mindset anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine you know you're talking about somebody with healthy lungs; they can they can compensate very well or fairly well with the pneumothoraces, but when you add on top of Trauma, blood loss, um, you know, maybe narcotics that are depressing respiratory drive. Mm-hmm. I Imagine all those things kind of add up, um, making the situation a little bit worse.
0: Right, exactly. Um, you know, uh, a traumatic pneumothorax thorax implies um, damage to the to the thorax, to the chest cavity, um, and you know this the lungs uh, which lie within the chest cavity. And it's pretty rare that some traumatic event that's significant enough to cause a pneumothorax isn't gonna cause some um, you know, damage to the alveoli as well. Um, and w- that may not be, manif- <clears throat> excuse me, manifest right away. You know, if it's a blast or a fall or uh, blunt force trauma, you could have a contusion like a bruise that develops over time. Um, that, that, you know, basically causes pulmonary edema, fluid in the uh, alveoli of the lungs, the small air spaces. Uh, and as that develops, their ability to tolerate the drop in lung surface area with the pneumothorax could get worse. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, that makes absolute sense.
0: You think about it that, you know, if you have a patient who has a pneumothorax from trauma, and over time, as you're watching them, their oxygenation gets worse. Their respiratory rate goes up. Their heart rate goes up, but their blood pressure stays stable. It's probably an oxygenation problem and a lung damage problem. Uh, and they're not, t- or the pneumothorax is compressing more lung. Right? It's gone from ten to fifteen to twenty to you know potentially dropping most of the lung without causing tension. If you have all those things and the blood pressure drops, then you have to think it's tension.
1: Okay. Yep. So kind of going along, okay, we I recognize this patient's just from MOI. Mm-hmm. You know, Done March. Okay. I found an injury, or I at least suspect he's got a, an injury. Long potential for development of uh, pneumothoraces or potentially hemothoraces. Mm-hmm. Um, I assess with my stethoscope, I keep hearing his lung. Mm-hmm. So, But, you know, my SpO2 is changing. Um, his respiratory rate keeps climbing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: His heart rate keeps climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I keep wanting to give him more narcotics because it just seems like he's just in pain.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I guess, how do I kind of cypher through this situation and, uh, and not just convince myself that um, since I can hear as long, that there's nothing actually wrong?
0: Well, that's a good question. Um, it's tough to diagnose a pneumothorax, a pneumothorax with just a stethoscope because you can get reflected lung sounds. It has to be pretty big before you have an area of the chest that's dull to percussion and, and has abs, absent or hyper resonant um, breath sounds uh, or absent breath sounds, I'm sorry um you know the gold standard is 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 actually an ultrasound it's not a chest x-ray because an ultrasound is going to let you look for other stuff right it'll not only show you to show that you have a pneumothorax but if that's due to bleeding and you have a hemothorax you'll see a collection of blood if it's if you've got concurrent pulmonary edema you'll see b lines if you've got um you know, sort of a mixed picture of atelectasis or an ARDS, you'll see um, consolidations. So, um, you know, with your um, patient that you describe in your stethoscope, I would probably first treat his um, pain uh, and see if things improve with that uh, as long as he is stable enough. You know, that's one of my favorite sayings is perfection is the enemy of good enough and stable enough is is a great goal, uh, especially in an austere setting. If he's unstable, you know, if he's coding and you have mechanisms, you know, then you may just have to empirically blend, being prepared that if you do and it's not a pneumothorax, you just gave him one. And so now you've got to place just to.
1: Right. And so. You know, I think that latter part, you're essentially describing attention physiology. Right. Which, you know, you you have to act right immediately. Right. Um, Now, at least uh, a lot of people that I train with and that I train, you know, essentially it's MOI Mm -hmm. plus one. He has a hole in his chest from something Mm -hmm. and he's breathing fast or... um got a hole in his chest and his SpO2 isn't, you know, 98% or higher. Okay, um, did, what, I guess, what, it, what would be your medical opinion about just using that criteria alone to go ahead and start sending needles? Uh,
0: again, uh, unless you're prepared to treat a pneumothorax that you create with your empiric needle, I would probably hold off because, you know, there are other reasons for hypoxia and it depends, you know, it's a it's a matter of degree, right? If the SpO2 is eighty five percent, then again, that's probably good enough. If it's sixty five percent, you know, that kind of gets your attention. Um, uh, you know, respiratory rate is one of the first things that's elevated in in trauma for all sorts of reasons: pain, anxiety, shock, um, you know, blood loss. Um, so you know i my preference is to establish some trends uh do some non-invasive things you know to to treat things that you know are are on the differential diagnosis that can be treated non-invasively um as long as the patient's giving you time you know uh, to respond to all of these and not crashing and burning. If they're crashing and burning, it's a different conversation. But I'm going to assume that your patient is, you know, looks sick, um, but isn't, um, you know, uh, urgently unstable, where you just got to throw the kitchen sink at them.
1: Right. No. Um, at least from what my understanding and what little experience I have, these nom- pneumothoraces, they don't really develop that fast, that you have right. to jump in off the top rope um, on right. the X to start treating.
0: And you know, with all of our pneumothoraces in COVID, oh, uh, only a tiny percentage of them got chest tubes. You know, most of them we treated uh, we treated medically um, and and tried to get the lungs to heal uh, and the pneumothorax to resolve themselves.
1: Okay, um, so. No, I again. You know, you said you treated them medically, so maybe you, if you wouldn't mind going to what exactly does that mean?
0: Well, you want to minimize positive pressure ventilation as much as you can, because um, if you've got a hole in the lung that's communicating with the pleural space, pushing more pressure, positive pressure into the lung is going to, um, you know, just push more air through that hole into the pleural space and worsen your pneumothorax. So. If you're not on positive pressure ventilation, try not to start it. If you are, try to um, reduce the pressure as much as possible. If you can switch to a mode where the patient's breathing spontaneously and avoid giving them extra breaths, do that. Um, And, um, you know, if you need oxygen, you know, to increase your oxygenation, these are patients that I would prone first before I increase their PEEP because PEEP's going to make the pressure worse and pneumothorax worse. Proning isn't going to trouble any of that.
1: Okay. So I guess the pressure you're talking about reducing, is that the peep? Is that the pip? Is that everything?
0: Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's yeah. I want to give them the smallest tidal volume or pressure support, whichever, you know, is whichever mode you're using to deliver the breath, and the lowest peep that will give me a good enough uh, oxygenation and and there I'm thinking you know between eighty five and eighty eight percent certainly if yeah certainly if you're in the nineties you know stop if you're in the nineties and and, uh, and you're on no supplemental oxygen you have to question whether they need a, a to be an event at all um, but yeah so good enough oxygenation and then a good enough um, tidal CO two you know and I would settle for something in the high forties to fifty. Okay. Um, Probably high 40 since it runs a little bit lower than the R2. But still, I would settle for you know a good enough Oxy- uh, SpO2 and a good enough end-tidal CO2 at the lowest pressures possible, both in terms of PIP and um, NP. And
1: okay. And so um, you mentioned 85%. So let's say you know, we prone the guy um, mm-hmm. or whatever other positioning we can come up with best of our knowledge we've reduced the amount of pressure that we're giving this guy to the best of our abilities mm-hmm. and um we're still not really hitting goals we've are even starting up the soros that we found and we're hitting them at three liters a minute which is the max okay so you know it's not attention but should i start treating the actual pneumothoraces
0: at that point i would right? Because, you know, you've got um, a physiologically significant pneumothorax, not from a hemodynamic standpoint, but from an oxygenation standpoint. And that's an indication to to ideally put in a chest tube.
1: Okay. Um, Is this something that's an emergent thing? Or, I mean, obviously it's going to depend on how fast did you go from 95 to now below 85, but... um, something that I need to like drop a needle and then maybe do a finger thoracotomy and then progress into a chest tube? Or can I just kind of uh, prepare to do a chest tube and just get it over with?
0: Again, it really depends on your rate of decline. If it's been over hours, I would say you have time to do a chest tube. If it's, you know, minutes and he's gone from, you know, you know, 92 to 85 to 80 to 75, as you're standing there, you probably don't have too, too long before, um, the hypoxia is severe enough that he goes into cardiac arrest. Um, and so in that case, either of, uh, emergent finger thoracostomy or, um, a needle or both, um, yeah, to, uh, um, before you, you don't, you probably don't have time to get a chest tube in.
1: Okay. Um, just in, in your experience, I'm, maybe I asked this again and I'm forgetting it, blanking about it. How fast is this normal, like a normal progression, say, you know, a gunshot wound or a car accident? Like, like is this, we talk in minutes, we talk in hours, we talk in days.
0: There's no normal. No normal. There's no normal. Some people will tank before your eyes uh, in the scenario I just described, and some people will, you know, develop a pneumothorax a day later um and it, it remains small um and some people will develop a slowly progressive one that, that you know worsens over you know 24 to 48 hours um there there is no there is no normal uh pattern um and which is which is why you know you just really need to be vigilant um, and then confident in your assessment uh, and confident in your ability to intervene. You know before it's too late you know it's tough you've got to be goldilocks right? Uh, right you don't want to intervene too early and do a procedure and cause harm um you know especially if there's not a pneumothorax and you're doing a procedure that gives one one uh but you also don't want to be too late and you're putting in the chest tube but people are doing chest compressions because they've gone into pea arrest you know they've braided down to 30 and gone into pea arrest because their oxygen saturation is like 45 mm-hmm.
1: So, if you had to err on one side or the other, which side would you want history to judge you?
0: Ah, uh, I prefer not to err.
1: <laughs> oh, yes, of course. However, you're still human, just like we all are. So, would you rather be over aggressive and known to do things early? Or no, would you rather I'd probably be
0: the guy i probably err on the side of caution and then increase my vigilance? I'd probably okay. watch, um, you know, that's it generally, you know, I, yeah, um, I would err on the side of caution, not do a procedure unless the patient demonstrated a worsening trend, but I would increase my vigilance and I would, you know, what I the other thing I would do is I would prep to do that procedure, right? I would have everything at the bedside, um, you know, uh, and we do this all the time in the ICU, right? Um, you know, if we think a patient's going to, you know, become unstable or be unstable when they arrive, we'll have all the cardiovascular drugs to put in the room waiting for the patient. If I think they're going to need an airway, we'll have you know RSI drugs in the room, and you know, sometimes they just go back in the in the um, medication cabinet. Uh, but you know, a patient like this is. You know, a, a patient with a pneumothorax who's rock solid stable, even though their pneumothorax looks like a crescent, you know, they say you have a chest x-ray and looks like a, you know, a two inch wide crescent over the top of their right lung. You know, they're not as much of a risk as a patient who, um, you know, has a pneumothorax that you've diagnosed an ultrasound and is just clinically deteriorating uh, after you've eliminated all of the reasons for their deterioration. You know, are they bleeding? Um, for instance, being a big one in trauma.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I also yeah. hear a lot of like, uh, well, needle decompression is uh, is diagnostic and therapeutic at the same time. So or harmful or harmful as well.
0: Right. So it's either diagnostic and therapeutic, or it's it, it causes an iatrogenic injury, which isn't trivial. Right. You know? And God yeah. forbid you don't, in, and please don't hit an intercostal artery as it's going in, because then you really have caused an injury. Then then, then not only do you have a pneumothorax, but you have a, a hemothorax, and intercostal yeah. arteries can bleed like stain.
1: Oh, yeah. And also that uh, three-and-a-quarter-inch needle is more than capable of hitting their heart as well.
0: Yeah, don't do that, or their liver if you get it too low, but hopefully you're going up high in midline like you're supposed to. Right.
1: So it, these things are definitely not benign at all. Um, I got to be honest. I think we nailed uh pneumothorax. So mm-hmm. let's kind of. I think also very real. I think it's very realistic to say that rarely are they one or the other, hemothorax or a pneumothorax. I would imagine generally they're a combination of both. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, when, when do I need to, are there any different considerations when it comes to a thorax? Um, because I would imagine that blood is going to coagulate.
0: Correct. Which can be a good thing. Okay. Because, um, you know, let's say you're bleeding into your thoracic cavity, um, from a vessel that's small enough that increasing the pressure on the vessel will actually tamponade off the bleed, then at a certain size of your hemothorax and a certain pressure associated with that size, your bleeding may actually stop. Um, And it'll look terrible on ultrasound and look terrible on chest x-ray, but if you're not in tension physiology, just leave it there and essentially you've stopped the bleed in the lung and let the the surgeon scoop all that out in a controlled situation. Where you have to worry is if you have a bleed, you know, like an intercostal artery or several intercostal arteries that really aren't amenable to compression, that bleed is just going to continue to get bigger. Um, You will eventually develop a tension hemothorax. Um, The trick there is the tricky part there is that when you do your finger thoracostomy to relieve the tension hemothorax, and these usually are more, more, or they, these usually happen faster and are more urgent, you know, and, um, and, and there's more urgency. Um, then, you know, that internal hemorrhage is going to become an ent- external hemorrhage and all that blood is, is lost. And your patient's going to be not only an obstructive shock, which you relieve now they're in hypovolemic shock from hemorrhage so you really need to be able to resuscitate them as you're relieving the tension
1: okay so one of the kind of the debates that we have as instructors because we're nerds um (laughs) is do i relieve the the hemothorax or do Mm -hmm. i get access and start sending blood which one comes first the chicken or the egg
0: uh it depends on how close the guy is to dying if like i said if he's you know if he's in profound shock um from obstructive shock uh you need to relieve that first you need to treat the you need to treat the cause of shock that's going to kill him first okay Um, and so if that is and the, the thing is if the other thing with ultrasound is not only can you diagnose the presence of a uh, of a pneumothorax or of a hemothorax, but you can also observe the effect of it on the heart, right? You can see abnormal relaxation of the right ventricle, of the right atrium, or God forbid, the left ventricle, left ventricle if it's bad enough. You can see that it looks squished and it's not fully relaxing. Um, you may want to study this and get some films of it so you know what it looks like, but you know, you know it's pretty easy uh, if you can get a picture of the heart, um, to, to see, to, to use the imaging of the heart as confirmation that your intention physiology.
1: Okay. Nice.
0: You know, very similar to what we would do with tamponade physiology, which is the last form of obstructive shock where something outside the heart. So, um, If that's the case, I would probably, I would relieve the tension first because you probably have seconds until they arrest. Um, And then, um, you know, and you don't need to relieve it all, right? Like you can put your finger in, get a few hundred cc's of blood out and take your finger out and cover it with a sealed, you know, with a dressing. Um, And the hemodynamics will improve uh, and then you can get your line in or your I.O. in if, if you can't get a line because you can't see the veins because they're hypovolemic already and start your transfusing, And then at least you can get blood going if you have to relieve the tension again. Right. I
1: think ideally, as you've cross trained your teammates so that these things can happen simultaneously, you know, the medic relieves right. the tension. The helper gets an I.O. Or, or is able to get some kind of venous access.
0: Right. And if you're on a team with two medics, then it's easy to divide the work, right? Somebody's working on access with the other person's working on the thoracostomy and, and relieving that. That's not a patient, I, you know, I, unless you're someplace where you've got a surgeon close. Um, that's probably not a patient where I would, well, I, I would put a chest tube in, but I would clamp it. I would have a way to clamp it. Okay. Because you don't you don't want to leave it open to drain and then the guy just exsanguinates from his chest tube faster than you can resuscitate him.
1: Okay, that, I understand that. Now, um, at least my thought was if I can evacuate the chest and get the lungs inflated again, then mm-hmm. that also will stop a uh, bleeding inside the chest. Has that been your experience?
0: No, a big enough artery is going to bleed until somebody, you know, it's a, until some surgeon fixes it.
1: Okay. Yeah, sadly. Yes. <laughs> I was hoping you're going to say you're correct dennis
0: no i sat on a i sat on a uh pulmonary artery injury post-op it happened interoperatively but he came out and wound up having a post uh, you know um pulmonary artery injury um during the surgery and was closed up and you know basically resuscitated him for several hours until we could get an or and a surgeon to fix it
1: okay I imagine things like the lethal triad are also going to come biting you, you know, if he's colder than he needs to be, if he's acidotic, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hemorrhage is hemorrhage, right? Yep. So, uh, uh, and bleeding is bleeding. So, you know, if that's the situation you find yourself in with a hemothorax and not a pneumothorax, then all of those, um, you know, optimize every point on the lethal diamond that you can. Um because you only have so much blood, so controlling all those other factors that can either improve your ability to coagulate or worsen it um, becomes super important.
1: Perfect. So, um, if you had to give you know young dentists some advice, um, other than pick a different profession, um, <laughs> you know, when it ha- when it comes to chest trauma, just shy of tension, um, what advice would you give?
0: Um, know what can go wrong, know the, know, know the various complications, serious complications of chest trauma, um, you know, to include um, pneumothorax, uh, to include bleeding that can cause a hemothorax, as well as hemorrhagic shock, um, ARDS development, um, pulmonary edema development, um it's kind of be aware of all of those and then just be very vigilant because um sometimes chest trauma can be present you with a fast moving train of instability and then it's pretty obvious um at least once you figure out whether you're dealing with air or blood or both uh but sometimes it's a slow moving train that gathers speed as the damage to the lungs worsens over time as it you know swelling from contusion and inflammation cause ards
1: perfect um
0: and then i guess one last thing too if you're faced with a, a trauma you know trauma patient who is getting worse because they've got other mechanisms like pulmonary edema contusion or a, or ards or all of the above and they have a pneumothorax that's probably a patient you even if they're stable with that pneumothorax, you may wind up having to put a chest tube in because in order to oxygenate their lung injury enough, you're going to have to put so much ventilator pressure in that you're going to worsen the pneumothorax, and then you're going to have to vent it.
1: Okay. Yep. That, that makes, makes sense. It does make sense. Um, well, I got to be honest. That was all my questions.
0: Awesome. That was a good conversation.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um.
0: Awesome. Cool. All right, I think dinner's ready, if that's if, yep. we're, if that's good enough material for this one.
1: I think it is. Um, thank you, Doug.
0: That's excellent. Right, you're welcome, Dennis. And, uh, yeah, let's do that cardiology one sometime. That'll be fun.
1: Yep, I'm looking forward to it. For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Hurry
0: Boy is waiting there for you!